Did Swedenborg have any dialogue with Jesus? Did the angels help us find and connect with our soulmate? Does Swedenborg mention suicide? Will we be able to see God when we pass God away? God is omniscient, and why would How he can someone evil? gain heavenly rewards? Is the afterlife more lined up than the Does Swedenborg tell us anything about our Is there any particular? Hey everybody, welcome to Spiritual Questions Answered. I'm Curtis Childs and I'm your host, but like in this kind of show, I just pop in at the beginning of the end and you may see me in the middle for something, but don't worry, there won't be too much of me in there. The point of this show is we get a lot of excellent questions on this channel from you, our excellent audience, and we want to make sure that we address those, give them their due, so we're going to engage with your topics of conversation here. We try to get a diverse panel of people coming in and answering, so you'll see some new faces as we move through this, which is exciting. And I just say, I'm always impressed by the quality of questions, and you you often spur us to think of things we wouldn't have thought of before. So without further ado, here's our best uh, attempt at offering some thoughts on this uh, fascinating slice of life. Mr. Binker's The Cat asks, I wonder what truly separates the three levels of hell and heaven? Like, what is the mindset that would elevate or cast you down? The main thing to understand is that the Lord wants to draw all of us to himself. So there is this will of the Lord's that is to raise us all into the highest heaven. Um, And that's uh, drawing, you know, reaching out to all of us. And uh, but we are allowed in our freedom to go as far along that journey as we want to or not. And another element to understand is that although there are these three levels of heaven that we can imagine being outside of us, we are really, we have them mapped on the inside of us. And so there are three levels to our spiritual mind that we can um, open up to as we uh, do our spiritual work, you know, turn to the Lord and have the Lord do uh, lead us on our path of regeneration. So the only thing that would uh, cast us down is to entirely refuse to... um, acknowledge to learn what evil is and to turn away from it. You know, if we are just entirely unwilling to start on that path, then that is the, that's the mindset that closes off the higher levels of heaven in our own minds and ultimately just keeps us on the lowest level, which becomes a form and image of hell. If we're unwilling to have any inflow of the Lord's love and wisdom into our mind. Um, But if we do follow that path, then the earthly level of our mind becomes itself a form and image of heaven because the upper levels have been opened and then the Lord takes care of it. So we're not, we don't have to be in charge and we don't even know all the various kinds of, you know, evil that we might be caught up in that the Lord needs to slowly and gradually root out of us. But if we are just willing to show up every day, then um, we can trust that the Lord's doing that work. And I think we do, you will notice over time a shift in, in your own will, in what you actually love. What really distinguishes the three levels is really where that, what the basis of it is. He says the angels of the highest heaven, their basis is living from purpose. And so the Lord's love and wisdom has become a matter of intention for them, that that's the intention that they live with every day. 
Um, and then the second level, Swedenborg says, is uh, living from a matter from the level of means or a basis of truth where it's a matter of uh, understanding or in your memory that you know, oh, I need to live this way, so I'm going to do it because I understand the system of truth of why I need to be loving my neighbor and serving the Lord and this sort of thing. But that's different than having it, um, your intention be the love itself. And then the lowest level is um, the level of results, he says, or just an interest in um, living a good moral life in terms of, well, I know to do what's right and not to do what's wrong. And so that's the way I'm going to live. And then that's, uh, it doesn't go any deeper than that. Um, but there's no, uh, judgment in terms of what level you're ultimately on because he says every angel, every person is led to their spiritual home in heaven if they're willing to go on this path and, um, and ultimately gets to live in a place where they experience their highest joy. Heaven is heaven wherever you are. Um, and so we all have our perfect place there. And so you can trust that in your own life, uh, it's, it's not going to be a blindsided, am I going to get cast down to hell because of evil things I've done? It's, um, are you willing to go on this path? And even just picking one thing of like, well, I know that this thing is not good to do, you know, or is wrong or unloving or something. So I'm going to resist doing that. That is what can trigger the Lord's work in us to, um, to, transform your will and your understanding to lead you into a deeper and deeper uh, rootedness of love. We were given a question by Robbie that said, how are we to be around others that don't believe in heaven and hell, yet they may even mock you right in your face? Well, my response to that is a couple of things. One is that I start to think about different ways that people in history have responded to people who believe differently than they do. In general, I sort of see three different categories of responses. One is very passive, one is very aggressive, and the other is more assertive and I think more appropriate. So we'll get to that one in a minute. Let's take think of some examples of uh, religious groups that might be mocked, that might be made fun of for their religious beliefs about heaven and hell. And how do they respond? Well, I'm thinking about Quakers and the Amish, Pennsylvania Dutch folks. Both of them have a vow of nonviolence. So if anybody was to come right up to their face and make fun of their religion, maybe even spit in their face and just make them a laughing stock, how would the Amish, how would a Quaker respond to that? They would be humble and they would try to find a way to negotiate with that person or just be quiet. They would not respond with revenge. So that's a choice that you have, Robbie. You could think, I want to be like the Amish. I want to be like the Quakers who choose to take a, a more subdued a submission kind of a position. In the second category are people who have been interacting with others who have different belief systems and they choose to be aggressive. And the aggression may be out of zeal, it may be defensive, but it also could get a little violent. Let's take some examples from history. For instance, the Crusades that happened around 1200 and other years, that 
you had people who were in living in England, in France, and they went down to Jerusalem on horseback thinking that they were going to kill the infidels, kill people who did not believe that they had the right religion. And so it was better to kill them, they thought. And so their response to dealing with people who were Muslim, people who were Jewish, people who had no faith at all, or they were pagans, it, they had the position that it was better to kill them. And that was their way of resolving the conflict about different religious beliefs. I don't recommend it. But it occurs to us sometimes when somebody has been really unkind to us, when they make fun of something that's so precious to us, like our beliefs. So let's talk about the third option. I'll call it the assertive response, but I'd like to go beyond just being assertive, standing tall, defending your position. And I'd like to draw from the writings of Swedenborg. As you know, Swedenborg claimed that he, through mystical experiences, had a chance to visit the other world, the, the afterlife. And he got to witness people who were interacting with angels. And he got to talk to them and watch angels talking and having debates with other people. And there were scenes very similar to what Robbie's talking about, where people are making fun of each other's religion, laughing at each other, belittling each other, saying each other is not wise or they're stupid or whatever. So how do the angels handle it? And they are my favorite role models as I try to learn how to do conflict resolution. Here's some examples. I'm going to draw on a couple of different numbers from Swedenborg's writings. <clears throat> In True Christianity, number 665 and 666, there's a conversation going on about what is a conscience. And I'm just going to grab one phrase. It says, we ask them to tell us from their hearts what they thought. And in another situation, Swedenborg observed a conversation in True Christianity 334. He saw angels talking to people or debating with each other. And it says, they asked him to say from his heart whether he was jesting or really believed that there is nothing true but what man makes true. So in that particular debate, the angels believed in afterlife, obviously, but the Spirits who still held on to the idea that there's no such thing as heaven and hell. And there is no such thing as absolute truth. And so in that debate, the angels would ask, tell us from your heart what you really believe. In both of those examples, I find it quite um, interesting that there is a respect for the other person and a respect for oneself. There's no revenge. There's no belittling. And there's an assumption that both people have freedom of choice. One of my favorite quotes is uh, from uh, True Christianity, and this has to do with <clears throat> how do we bend people toward goodness? And this is where angels would talk to other people, and they would try to highlight what the other person loved. What affection did they have? And how do we... Um, Ask them in a gentle, respectful manner that there is something good about what the other person believes and that they have a heart, they have a conscience, they have an ability to understand what is true. 
So to have a conversation with somebody, even if they've just mocked you, even if they've yelled at you, spat in your face, whatever, don't respond to those negative attitudes with negativity. It'd be better to be patient and calm. It'd be better to wait, count to 10 if you have to, so you don't just immediately bark back at somebody who's been disrespectful. But then to ask them, tell me from your heart what you believe. Is there such a thing as truth? Is there an afterlife? If not, tell me what you think. What happens when we die? And then be quiet and listen. I'd like to end with just talking about one of the many beatitudes or blessings that was given on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was walking around Israel. And you may be familiar with this. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake or for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Mary writes and asks, were angels waiting for those that died when Stephen Paddock killed them? Did the angels already know what would happen? She's referring, of course, to Stephen Paddock, who was that Las Vegas shooter back on October 1st, who killed 58 people and injured almost 500 others. And how does it work when something like that happens? Most of those scenes that you see from near-death experiences and so on, uh, are so filled with peace and love. The angels are just there to greet you. Family members are there and so on. But does that all work when, when you didn't even see it, you know, like nobody in this world saw it coming? It's not like somebody's been sort of slowly declining in health. You know, all of a sudden there's this shooting and, and, and people are pouring into the other world. How does it work? Do they know what's going to happen? Well, the key to this thing is that the Lord knows what is going to happen, and he shares that with the angels. We read in the Bible, in 1 John 3, that God knows all things. And in Job, it says, he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. A friend of mine is fond of saying, nothing takes the Lord by surprise. And I think that's true. He, he knows everything that's going to happen. In fact, in Psalm 139, you even get the idea that he knows from the time of our birth, from the time we're in the womb, he knows exactly how long our life is going to be, when it's going to end, and so on. And Psalm 139 reads, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. So before we'd lived one day, the Lord already knew all the days that we were going to, we were going to have. And so that's the Lord, but what about the angels? What state are the angels in? Do they have a knowledge of the future? Do they get anxious and so on? What, what's their condition? Well, Swedenborg talks about this in Secrets of Heaven 2493, about how angels relate to the past and the future. He writes, I have spoken to angels about the memory of things of the past and about consequent anxiety concerning things of the future. And I've been informed that the more interior and perfect angels are, the less do they care about things of the past or think about those of the future. And that this is also the origin of their happiness. Hmm, when you think about it, a lot of our misery comes from the past or the future uh, you know, anticipation or anxiety and so on. 
The angels have said that the Lord provides them every moment with what to think. I think that's a key to it, that the Lord is sharing information with them in the moment. So they don't get too tangled up in the past or the future, but the Lord shares with them. And this is accompanied by blessing and happiness. And this being so, they have no cares and no worries. This is also what is meant in the inner meaning of the word by the manna being received day by day from heaven and by the daily provision of bread in the Lord's prayer, as well as by the statement that we are not to worry about what we are to eat or drink or what clothes we are to wear. But although angels have no care about things of the past and are not worried about the future, they nevertheless have a most perfect recollection of things of the past and a most perfect insight into those of the future. Now, you might wonder, well, if they know things are going to happen, why don't they stop it? You know, why, why don't you just stop it, intervene or do something about it? Well, I, I think the Lord and the angels actually do intervene a lot. But there's a statement that Swedenborg makes at one point in New Jerusalem that made me realize that you can't just stop a hundred percent of it. Like for people who are devoted to these kind of things, they'd have no life whatsoever. Just shut down every single thing they ever wanted to do. We have to have a certain level of freedom because that allows us to choose heaven for ourselves. So we read in New Jerusalem um, 276, the Lord tolerates evil, but not because he wants it to happen. He does not want it to happen, but he cannot remedy it completely because his overall goal, which is salvation, takes precedence. So he's playing a long game, and so there are things that he has to allow, but he takes all these different things into account and wants to bring good out of it. And he shares that information with angels. So when you think about it, actually every single death in this world, to some extent, comes as a surprise, even when somebody's been terminally ill or whatever, you never exactly know. Doesn't, doesn't the Bible say something about we don't know the day or the hour? You know, uh, some people who you thought were just, you know, on the edge, oh, they last for a long time. And others who you thought were fine or robust or they were doing badly and then they got better. But then all of a sudden they'll pass away. We don't really know the timing of not only just with these kind of violent, bizarre, random deaths like that, but actually every single thing that caused us to pass from this world and the other world has a little element of surprise to those of us who are here in this world to it. The, it's just the randomness of a mass shooting is, is on, a, on a much higher level, but it's kind of the same situation all the time. Uh, but the Lord has that covered, has us covered. So those angels, are oh, I don't think they're ever scrambling and running like, oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. Uh, they're always in this state of peace and love to just welcome us into that other world with open arms. Was Swedenborg attracted to his kind, quote unquote, in the next world? Did he get his understanding from them? This question comes from Harlan. I chose this question because this is something I think about a lot in my reading of Swedenborg and my trying to understand um, this great vision of how the world functions and how the spiritual and natural worlds are connected. You know, Swedenborg did not claim to be divine. He was very much a human being, um, but claimed that he was given the opportunity to have um, this intense experience of the other life and to 
to converse with angels and spirits and then come back and tell us about it. So on the one hand, he describes his experience as being quite unique and much more all-seeing and objective than likely any of us would um, ever experience if we were to visit heaven or hell um, as he did. Because what he tells us is that once we do enter the other world, most of us are, are not going to kind of see it from all of these different perspectives, but instead we're going to come into a community of people who are like ourselves, who have, share a similar spiritual state. And those are going to be the people that we are in community with and conversing with. Um, in Heaven and Hell, number 46, he describes this. People of similar quality all recognize each other there just the way people in this world recognize their neighbors and relatives and friends, even though they may never have seen each other before. This happens because the only relationships and kinships and friendships in the other life are spiritual ones and are therefore matters of love and faith. I've often been allowed to see this when I was in the spirit and therefore out of body and in the company of angels. Then some of them looked to me as though I had known them from infancy, while others seemed totally unfamiliar. The ones who looked as though I had known them from infancy were the ones who were in a state like that of my own spirit, while the unfamiliar ones were in dissimilar states. So that's one paragraph where he describes this dynamic, and he describes it in a lot of places in his writings, the way in which proximity um, has to do with a shared state um, and a shared understanding, which when I read Harlan's question seems to be talking about that. Did Swedenborg get his information about the spiritual world from other spiritual beings who had this shared state with him? And does that shape what he reports back? I would say, I would say yes. Um, I don't think it shapes his perspective completely in that he's unable to sort of see the bigger picture, but I, my suspicion is he does see the bigger picture from his context. You know, he spoke with Cicero and Newton in the spiritual world. He saw and conversed with people, famous men and intellectuals and scholars like himself. Um, he certainly spoke to other beings as well, but um, the, especially those individuals that he points out having spoken to seemed to resonate with who he was. Even some of the stories of his relationships and um, conversations with angels happen in these great debates, and they, to me, give a sense of who Swedenborg was and how he liked to communicate and what he was interested in. I would suspect that when I cross over fully into the other life that those probably won't be the same people that I will meet. Um, I don't necessarily feel an affinity to those scientists um, of old. There's other beings I'd be more interested in um, meeting. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. But certainly there's a certain swath of you know, Western civilization in particular that Swedenborg is peeking into um, on the other side. He also describes people in the spiritual world in groups that are, were very much the way human beings were grouped and described in the 1700s in Western Europe. You know, there's the Africans, there's the Protestants, there's the Catholics, there's the Jews. Um, he kind of groups people together, um, especially kind of 
the people in the circle and the people out of the circle in the way that he would have understood them and sees them kind of in heaven in, in a certain configuration, which when I was in seminary, I actually tried to map out everything, all the different groups of people that he describes, and it was kind of ridiculous, and, and but interesting to think about um, how he saw them in relationship to one another in the spiritual world. And I have to believe that part of the way he saw that had to do with who he was as a person. Um, I don't necessarily think it, I, I don't think at all that it negates his view, especially the kind of bigger picture of, of how spirits and angels work together, how they communicate, how heaven and hell exist. You know, in some ways, I think thinking about him as a person with a particular viewpoint and a particular state in communication with other beings of a particular state, it just brings his vision alive for me and, and makes it even more real because it really was his um, view. And clearly he was an incredibly smart, um, wise, knowledgeable, open-hearted human being. I mean, he'd gone through an incredible transformation in his own spiritual life, kind of confessing all of his faults and kind of really prostrating, prostrating himself before the Lord, kind of in preparation for this vision. I mean, he, he had cleared out his ego probably as much as any human being could. And that being the case, he still was a human being. And I have to believe that some of the ways he described how angels communicate and the way their states affect one another had to play out to a certain degree for him. So there's a group in Cincinnati that's been tuning in and watching our program. We really appreciate you all doing that. And they ask, are there different truths for different people? Well, and so I can tell you what I think is the truth about that, but is it going to be the truth or, or just my truth? All right, so I'm, I'm being clever already. As I see it, divine truth is not relative. There is an absolute truth that at a certain level, just like in the physical world, we know objects are in their particular place. This camera is here, that camera is right there. That's where they are. There's only one place where they are, although you can start to get fuzzy when it gets into the, the quantum world, which I'm not gonna pretend I understand. But the, the reality of that truth is so intensely more complex than where a camera is sitting or what it is that we are gonna only be able to interface with that truth in a way that's um, personal to us. Because the actual truth as it is of God, even the highest angels can't absorb directly, Swedenborg says, that there is this interfacing that has to happen between the closest things in our mind that are receptive and the truth itself. So for everybody, there's gonna be a different reception of the same truth. The heaven is this reception of goodness and truth. That's what makes heaven, is that coming into us. But Swedenborg says no two heavens are exactly the same. The experience of heaven is never the same. The love and wisdom in any particular person is never exactly the same. That doesn't mean God, who is divine truth, doesn't mean God is changing, but it means that we can each see a slightly different slice. Like we're all standing in a line, you just get a slightly different perspective, depending on where you are. And Swedenborg says this applies to even, you think about the Bible, Swedenborg calls it the word and says in this document, it's like an index or a summary of divine truth. You can find it there. 
and you'd think, okay, this is gonna lay it out, there's gonna be one interpretation that's correct, but actually, there are many, many correct interpretations of the word, according to Swedenborg. First of all, he says there's multiple layers going on at the same time, so you have a story that both is talking about the history of human spirituality, the development of your personal psyche, and the development of, of God and in the person of his human manifestation, all that stuff. It's still a finite number, though, that's just three meanings. However, Swedenborg says that there's actually unlimited correct interpretations, and it, that it's actually in the word itself. So in the Garden of Eden story, in Genesis, when everybody's kicked out, there's a cherub, you know, that's guarding uh, the garden, and he has a sword, a flaming sword that says, was turning all ways, or however it's translated. So you picture somebody, what, like, what's, what, like, is that really that intimidating? He says that that is a symbol of how the ideas in the word can be used in any um, number of ways provided they lead towards what is good or what is love and that the, that is all correct so that that guardian of of the truth is is written into the way it appears is this like there are a lot of ways to do things uh, my takeaway is you're always going to be surprised at the diversity of paths that are correct there's a quote from swedenborg that says nobody not even an angel can know all the different ways in which somebody is led by the Lord. So while I do think there is one thing that's true, it, it, there are infinite ways to get there. And I, it's, I, there's always a balance here between, well, what if my truth says I can steal your phone? Because that, so there's a balance between, yeah, there's certain things that are, are universally not okay, but on the other side, just because I understand something this way, doesn't mean I understand it right, and doesn't mean that just because you have a different understanding of it, that your understanding is less correct. Not that all understandings are correct, but there are infinite correct understandings. You get what I'm saying? It's a, that there is a, is a lot more out there than you think. So let's keep an open mind. Let's try to strike that balance of we can agree on things that are good and true and try to move in that direction, but just know you're always gonna be surprised and, and give people the benefit of the doubt as much as is possible in the way that they're seeing things, because it could well be we're looking from different angles at the very same truth. Edwin asked, did Swedenborg meet up with spirits that were mediums or psychics in his spiritual travels? Yes, Swedenborg did meet many mediums in the spiritual world. Reading through his diary of his spiritual experiences, I get the impression of a world in which mediums or go-betweens are an essential part of a system of keeping wider connection between a great variety of different kinds of spiritual communities. Though everyone in the afterlife is to some extent psychic because communication happens from mind to mind, it doesn't mean that everyone in the afterlife can easily communicate with everyone else. Part of spiritual world science is that people can't approach each other or communicate with each other if their thoughts and feelings are very different from one another. So. Mediums in the afterlife are people who are able to bridge a gap between one level of the spiritual realm and another or between one spiritual community and another. And like with everything in life, being a medium can be done in a way that serves evil purposes or good purposes. I'll start with looking at the evil or destructive version. So evil spirits in hell are constantly looking for any spirit they could grab to use as a medium to get closer to a target that is out of their reach, to try to hurt and abuse that target. But like with any crime gang, these evil spirits consider the medium someone that they have a right to control and to cast blame on for the action that they made the medium do. 
This is from Spiritual Experiences 3688. Certain cruel evil spirits said they could treat their medium as a dog, and indeed one that would act entirely according to their thoughts and bidding. When they are lacking such a medium, they act in secret, and only in certain circumstances, thus in fear. Yet, when they get a hold of a medium, upon whom they can cast blame, they are the most wicked, more than others, beyond others, adulterers as well as cruel. So evil spirits look for mediums that they can use in the spiritual realm. So they'd be looking for people on earth to use too. This might be someone who actually acts as a psychic medium, making a conscious connection between the spiritual and physical worlds, or just any of us acting on negative thoughts and feelings that come to us. Either way, evil spirits are looking for go-betweens that can do their dirty work or spread false information and then take the blame and the consequences. That's why it's really important to develop for ourselves a strong conscience based on sound principles of what's right and wrong and a growing discernment about what is true so that we're harder for any evil spirits to recruit consciously or unconsciously. But there are also good and useful mediums that Swedenborg encountered in the spiritual world. Here's a quote in which he's telling how essential the medium spirits were. Spiritual Experiences 3631, it was shown in various ways that the speech and thought of inward spirits, so deeper, uh, more good spirits, could not reach me without mediums, for they spoke with me through mediums and without mediums. When they spoke without mediums, there was a kind of undulation drifting up to my ears, thus a sound as of many speaking, but I understood nothing they were saying, although I was told that they were divided up into clear units of language and thought as far as they were concerned. But by the intervention of intermediates, I at once understood and heard what they were saying and thinking. So just as a medium on earth can be someone who is simply able to receive some messages that can't be received by others and be able to put it into earthly speech, a medium in the spiritual realm can act as a go-between, between a go-between messenger and translator, or even just the spokesperson of a whole society. The quality of the translation will depend upon the quality of the state of mind of the messenger. So a healthy humility is always a good idea, like with anything. And again, we're all acting the part of mediums when we choose what thoughts and feelings to put into speech or action. Swedenborg goes on to report that in this world of spirits, there are many who are acting the part of mediums for higher or lower spiritual societies, but don't want to acknowledge that and insist that they are only speaking from themselves. So I think it's spiritually healthy to acknowledge that we're always speaking on behalf of some group in the spiritual realm and to work to be more and more discerning about what kinds of messages and actions we are being a medium for. An interesting aside, in one passage, Swedenborg comments that people who had been comedians on earth can make really good mediums in the spiritual world because they have already developed a lighthearted willingness to take on and convey a character or message that they know is not themselves. And finally, I'll share a quote talking about how we can work together with angels and good spirits to become part of a network connecting heaven and earth. This is from Spiritual Experiences 4271. Good spirits, and angels even more, delight in being with a person on earth who is caring, meaning kind. 
There are spirits with a person on earth and also angels, good spirits with those who are caring, which spirits are mediums of many societies. The things that stream in from the angels are received according to the person's quality or love. When he or she is imbued with charity, life with the angels is joyful and delightful, for they have a connection with the mental imagery of the person's memory, for they are grounded in it. Therefore, angels and good spirits can have a joyful life there. Are narcissistic people excused for their behavior on earth or in heaven, being that this could be mental illness and beyond their control? When we think about a narcissistic person, I think of this as the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. And I'm going to turn for a moment to psychology today, which has um, a statement on personality disorders. They say personality disorders are deeply ingrained ways of thinking and behaving that are inflexible. And they generally lead to impaired relationships with others. And mental health professionals formally recognize 10 disorders, 10 personality disorders that fall into three clusters. But the important thing I want to emphasize is this little book, The Diagnostic Criteria, version number five. The reason that's important is because what is in that book are mental illnesses, that personality disorders are considered forms of mental illness. And a, um, and a personality disorder that is narcissistic, like the other personality disorders, would in fact be considered a mental illness. Now keeping that in mind, I want to turn to Swedenborg. And this is from Divine Providence. He says, the reason no one is reformed in a state of mental illness is that mental illness deprives us of rationality and therefore of the freedom to act rationally. The mind is sick and not healthy. And while a healthy mind is rational, a sick one is not. The illnesses are things like depression, imagined or illusory guilt, various kinds of hallucinations, mental anguish brought on by misfortunes, and mental anxiety and pain brought on by physical disorders. Now this is important. He says these are sometimes thought of as temptations, but they are not real temptations focus on spiritual issues. And during them, the mind is in possession of its skills. The states I am talking about focus on earthly issues. And during them, the mind goes mad. So I understand Swedenborg to be saying that in order to be in a state where we are 
being tested, where we are expected to have behaviors that come out of rationality, out of our connection with God, to be in a state like that, we cannot have a severe mental illness because we need to be able to think clearly and rationally. In a state of mental illness, we may not be able to do so. And there are certainly mental illnesses that are very minor, um, lasting for a very short period of time, and, and they might not be applicable here. But when we're talking about a fairly severe mental illness that becomes part of one's personality over a long period of time, such as a narcissistic personality disorder, then no, that person is not considered to be rational in their decisions and their behaviors. So when we go to the question, and I'm going to rephrase it, would somebody with a narcissistic personality disorder be excused for their behavior on earth or in heaven? And I would say basically yes is what Swedenborg would say, that they are not held accountable for their behaviors in the same way that a normally rational person is. That God understands that they are not responding out of their real mind, not on earth. Now in heaven and in a spiritual heavenly state, then they can respond out of the core of their being. And then they would be held accountable for their actions and thoughts and behaviors. So that is my understanding of this question. And it is one of the reasons I so enjoy this interplay between psychology and Swedenborgian theology. I think Swedenborg was extremely advanced for his time and had a very deep understanding of psychological issues and how they overlap with spirituality. All right, that's our show. Thanks so much for providing those awesome questions. I know we can't claim to have comprehensively and finally answered every single one, but I hope you enjoyed the conversation. That's what we enjoy doing here, and uh, you've already given so much by your, your time and attention and your questions, but if you want to give just a little bit more, you could like and subscribe if you're not already, and if you are subscribed, make sure you turn those notifications on, because it's just a way of YouTube recognizing that, oh, these people do like this thing, we better push it out to more people, and hopefully they like it as well, and the world gets to be a happier place. If you want to help make this content possible, consider joining us on Patreon. We're a nonprofit, so we work off of donations. Patreon is a way that you are giving just a very small $1 gift per episode that we put out, and from that, you're making the whole thing run. And as a little thank you from us to you, we'll give you some behind-the-scenes content. This week, our executive director, Morgan, makes an appearance, and she hooks you up with a way to get a free book. So, who wouldn't want that? It's called How to Think Like an Angel. And uh, that's a good life skill to have. All right, we're going to be back next week with a brand new episode of Swedenborg in Life, where we're going to be talking about how to write the word on your heart and how to interface with revelation and all these different forms that it appears and, and get that to turn into something that brings you this feeling of, hey, God is right here and life is good. So that's what we're going to try to hook you up with next week. Hope you have a great time. Until then.